We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 11. So if you want to take your Bible there, um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up there with some of the, really some of the most famous passage uh, verses on um, the Last Supper and communion as we celebrate that together. As you go there, a few things that are happening. Of course, I want to ask you to be prayerfully lifting up uh, the two services that we are starting on March 1st, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And I, I, without a doubt, feel like God has lots of stuff for us. He doesn't call us to something big like that without having an agenda and a plan and, and something to do. Uh, it may not come in the way we expect it. It may not come in the timing we expect. But I think without a doubt it's coming because I don't think God is wasting that call on us. And I think that's exciting. I think it means that you know uh, we have the opportunity to be even more effective and to throw an even wider net for the kingdom of God. And uh, wow, isn't that a privilege? Isn't that, isn't that just cool? Uh, that warm and thrill your heart. So uh, I know there'll be stuff we got to figure out as we go, but uh, we're up for the challenge. One of the things we're going to do is tomorrow night right here, 730 to 8.30, no longer than an hour. Uh, Matt is going to have a meeting with all of our Sunday morning kids workers. So if you're in kids ministry on Sunday morning, we want to make sure we're all, we all got our heads in the game and we're all going the same way. Um, and we don't normally have, you know, midweek meetings or whatever, but this is one of those spots where there's just too much uh, opportunity for confusion and whatever. So as we get to two services, we want to make sure we're all coordinated. Each class knows what the deal is and um, that everybody's cared for, that we're working together as a team. Uh, and doing that requires some communication. So tomorrow night, we will be doing that. Also tomorrow night, here is a uh, the second go-round of our small group starter group that Damon is holding. Uh, it is basically just a starter small group. So if you don't have a small group, uh, or you haven't been able to connect with one, all you have to do is show up tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, and Damon's got one of the classrooms, and he's meeting together, and we're going to have a small group. So uh, if you missed last week, you, it is not too late for you. Come be a part of it tomorrow night. And uh, we will see that thing grow. And if you were there last week, invite somebody else to come with you. And um, we will see that thing grow and uh, watch God work in those small group things. A great moment, not just to share what God is doing in your life, but to pray for each other. Um, and those are, those are great privileges we have as the body of Christ. Then uh, Saturday is our men's breakfast. Uh, so men, come out and be a part of that. And then Sunday is our deadline for... Uh, Saturday is also Valentine's Day, in case you're wondering. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's Saturday. And then Sunday is our deadline for slogans for our bumper stickers, right? Isn't it Sunday? So if you have an idea of what we could put on a bumper sticker, that would be a good you know, saying to put out there, a slogan that we could use. Uh, there's a clipboard back there. It's got five or six right now. So add yours to it. And uh, we're trying to get the you know everybody engaged in putting our heads together and coming up with the best thing that we could have riding around on the back of a couple hundred cars. Uh, and sharing what God's doing here with other people, uh, even while we're stuck in traffic or parked in a parking lot or whatever, you know, just all the time. So uh, be a part of that if you would. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 is where we are. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and read what we talked about last week and then just flow into this week's uh, chunk of Scripture. Um, and, and I remind you that this is something that, it is, at least for me, growing up in church all of my life, I heard these verses read an awful lot uh, at communion. Um, and and it's, it was weird for me when I finally realized that this was not a part of the Gospels, that this was read out of an epistle, a letter written to a church, that it was written by somebody who wasn't even there. Paul wasn't even there for this to happen. And yet he's the one that wrote maybe the, you know, the, the, 
the final word, if you will, on um, communion. Uh, it is probably the first re- accounting of it that is written down and passed around from church to church because 1 Corinthians is most likely written before any of the other Gospels. Um, and yet it's written by Paul, who wasn't saved and didn't come to Christ till well after Christ's death and resurrection. And so we're going to read that, and then I'm going to read the, the stuff that we're looking at tonight comes after he describes um, the, the, what Jesus did and said and what, it, what his challenge and his critique of them is in it. So here's what he says. Verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. All right, so Paul describes the Last Supper, and we kind of looked at that last time. Uh, The night on which he was betrayed, there is this great evil, arguably the greatest evil act that has ever happened in all of history, the betrayal of our Lord by one that he had chosen, one that he had walked with, one that he loved, one that he washed his feet, the betrayal of Jesus. And on the night he was betrayed, He did this. He said, I choose to give myself for you. And so we saw that he used the bread as a symbol of his body. And he said, I'm going to give my body for you. I'm going to let my body be broken for you in your place, on your behalf. I'm going to let my body be broken for you. By the way, husbands, the call of God is for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. As you, as you reflect on, this is my body broken for you, you can get blown away by how much he is willing to give and how much he is invested in the hope of my future. But then you, you need to be stirred because something inside of the heart of each man is, that's who I need to be for the one that God has given to me. And so there's, there's some connection there. And so he said, this is my body on your behalf, in place of you, taking the punishment that is yours. We saw that the bread had been given as a symbol of the exodus, that, that it was unleavened and they had to leave quickly and it didn't get baked and so they were on their way and, and now it is transformed from a symbol of deliverance from the slavery of Egypt to the deliverance of slavery from sin and the tyranny of death and, and eternal punishment and, and the, the, the wages of my sin. It is deliverance from all of that. And so as I eat that bread, I'm reminded that I have been set free. As the Israelites at Passover were reminded that they had been set free and gave thanks again to God, we give thanks to God at communion, that God has sent His Son, that His body was broken, and this symbol reminds us of that. And then it says in the same way He took the cup, and He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's very um, 
often in the Old Testament, Jewish people talked about blood. Uh, the stories in the Old Testament have lots and lots of death and blood in them. Let me ask you, have you ever thought about why? Why did God use or, or call for his people in the Old Testament to do such, for lack of a better word, barbaric things to animals? You know, there's a lot of people today who are you know, very, very tender-hearted towards animals and, and, and all that. And it's difficult for them to get their head around that God called for. In fact, the first animals, the implication is the first animals that were killed were killed by the hand of God when Adam and Eve sinned and he made skin coats for them. He made coats of animal skins for them, implying that he killed animals and took their skins to cover Adam and Eve. And so why does God, in, in the story of the Old Testament with his people and even before Israel, have so much blood involved in all of that. Have you ever wondered about that? Any thoughts on that? Any ideas? A symbol of atonement, okay? So a symbolic thing, the blood represents some things in in atonement. Yeah. We don't, have you noticed this? We don't take sin very seriously. It's very easy for us to be very flippant about sin. Um, we, we measure our sin against somebody else's and our sin is not as bad as theirs and so our sin doesn't really count or it's something I can't do anything about or I have an excuse for it. And so God used the death of animals in one way to represent to his people in a way that they could understand and digest. This is serious stuff. Your sin is not a trivial matter. It's a big deal. And as a matter of fact, as you read through the sacrifices, as you go through the first several chapters of Leviticus, you read through the sacrifices there, generally speaking, your sin cost you. In the Old Testament, when you did something wrong, you went out to your herds, you took one of your animals, you took it to the temple and you gave it to the temple and they killed your animal and they burned it or they took the meat or whatever and you you lost that that animal, you did not, you, it wasn't feeding your family. It wasn't something you sold at market and got money for. It was something that you gave away because you had done wrong. We don't do that so much anymore. Why don't we do that anymore? So Christ paid for our sin. So I no longer suffer loss that way. I no longer have to, quote unquote, pay for my sin. Christ paid for it. And then you kind of ask yourself, is that a good thing or a bad thing in the way that I live? Which is why we celebrate communion. So that even though it doesn't cost you, you are reminded on a regular basis the price of sin. And assuming that you love Jesus Christ, it matters to you that he died, that he suffered, that he took your place. And so there's that connection. In the Old Testament, it was very real. It was very pocketbook. Here it goes. In the New Testament, it is representative in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, that, and the blood and the, the gore and all that was, you could see vividly in front of you the price of sin. And so for us, it's something that maybe we need to be more serious about, especially as we come to communion and be reminded of the penalty of sin. In the Old Testament, there was a sense of covering your sin with the blood. I will, I will not see your sin because the blood covers it. In the New Testament, we see Jesus' blood washing sin away, removing its stain forever. Pretty cool stuff. All right. So then what he says is, whenever you do this, whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me. 
You do it in remembrance of me. And what we finished last time talking about was that there's no prescribed uh, time period that you have to do this. But there is a function of it. And the function of the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper together is a function of remembering. So the question is, how often do we need to do it to keep it forefront in our minds, but not let it get into something that is commonplace and trite and just, yeah, we do this all the time. Some churches do every single week. You know, there, there is some sense in the New Testament in the early church that they met even more often than once a week to celebrate communion together. And I, and I can understand that. If you, if you recognize that you've been delivered from darkness and death into life and eternal, your sins have been forgiven and you just want to celebrate it and celebrate it, and that's an awesome thing. But just like all humanity, it becomes the norm. It becomes overlookable in your life. And so we today try to balance, you know, remembering. We want to remember it. We want to do everything we can for it to have the impact that it needs to have in our lives. But it's not something that we do, um, you know, all the time because we recognize that there's a human capacity to get numb if you do it all the time. And so it comes up every four, five, six weeks with us. Uh, we go around and do that. And, uh, you know, uh, for us, uh, it'll be, we'll do it in, in uh, March, in the upcoming month, and then we will do it on Good Friday together, our Good Friday service, uh, 7 o'clock on Good Friday night. We'll get together. We'll have uh, the, the church in, you know, set up in the round, and it'll be kind of a community thing, that communion, um, and it'll be pretty cool. So that's coming up. And so then he says this. Now, now think with me about this. Whenever you eat this bread, verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, so you proclaim the Lord's death. What's he saying there? What do we, when he says you proclaim his death, as you do communion, you proclaim his death. What's he saying there? What, what does he mean by that? Okay. So proclamation has the idea of telling somebody, Right. One of the audiences that you can imagine that, that this would be for is for an unsaved person, someone who doesn't know Christ. It is a way that symbolically we can say, this is what I believe. This is what I believe Jesus did for me. This is what I believe is my salvation. The, the, the body of Christ broken for me, the blood of Christ spilled for me. This is what I believe. And so proclaim his death to people who don't know him. Um, difficult to do in some ways because... You know, we're doing it inside of church. They would do it inside of a home, you know. But in, in the other sense, you would expect in any healthy church that there are people who have come to church that don't know Christ. And we, as a, as a community, get together and show that collectively this is what we believe. We all, by participating, agree that this is what we believe. This is what we have our faith in, that Jesus' body and, and blood was broken and spilled for us. Okay, so to the unsaved, a proclamation of his death to the unsaved. Anything else? Anyone else that we would proclaim his death to? Okay, we are testifying to everybody of his great love, right? That, that you know, like Jesus says in, in John as we get to it, this is the greatest love there is, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. And I have called you friends. That's what he does. I have called you friends. So there is this how great 
the love the Father has given to us. That he's poured out this love on you and I. And to be uh, mindful of that, to be showing it in this, in this celebration together. Right? Bob. Yeah. Yes. It's enough. It's sufficient. It's, it's the final word on sin, the, the death of Christ. And I proclaim the power of his death and resurrection as I celebrate communion together. Right? Mary. Okay. Yeah. We don't think about that a lot, but the reality is when, maybe when you sing songs of praise, you think about it a little bit more, that there is this description in the Bible about our praises, the, the words of our mouth and the, the songs from our lips, filling his ears, filling the courts of heaven with his praise, which either we're singing really loud or sort of there's something else happening. You know what I mean? Like there's something spiritual going on because God is bending his ear and listening to us when we sing. And, and there's something that does in his heart that happens that we don't quite get, but it's cool that God is moved by our praise. And so it's not just in singing. We, we know God is moved when we pray, when we cry out to him. Our challenge verse for the month, when I was in a hard place, I cried to the Lord and he moved me. He, he saved me and rescued me, put me in a spacious place. So he responds. He's moved by my cry. He's also moved as we like, take the time to remember to put our focus and our attention and our, our minds around the sacrifice and, and give honor and praise and thanks to him for the sacrifice of his son. And there is worship in that. It's a different kind of worship, but it's worship. And so we are proclaiming it to the Father. Yes, Father, I believe what you've told me about your son, and I believe it. Good. Anybody else? Let's think about the Corinthian church. And what's going on at their communion services? Why does Paul say you would proclaim the Lord's death? Is he worried about the unsaved world? Is he worried about their worship? What's he worried about? What's he talking about to them? Their relationship with each other in the church. And he's saying, every time you get together and you celebrate communion... You have the opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death to one another. Do you ever need to be reminded of stuff you already know spiritually? Like all the time? As a matter of fact, I've said this a lot. The reality is most of us don't come to church to learn. Most of us come to church to be reminded of stuff we already know. But it's just hard to hold on to. Like, yeah, I knew that. You know, like I'm not that clever and, you know, the Bible is the same as it's been my whole life. So it's not like we're coming up with new stuff all the time, but we keep going back and we keep digging out these powerful, precious truths that we need to be reminded of. And so Paul says this communion service is given as an opportunity for us to declare Christ's death to one another. And in a very real sense, to myself, to proclaim it to myself. This is Christ's death. Why would it be important for me to proclaim it to one another and to myself? Yeah. So if I'm proclaiming it to one another, the, way, the reason I'm proclaiming it to one another is because we're not acting like this. The, you should be reminded in this ceremony about what Christ called us to do. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what he says in this 
as this happens, he says, so like I've been loved, like I've loved you, do that to each other. Do, do that, love each other that way. And this is supposed to be that spot where they're reminded of it and they're just blowing past it. They're coming together in the name of Christ to celebrate communion and they're acting like it's all about them. I mean, we do that in church today. You know, I, there's people who come to church and it's like, well, you know, I just, I just don't really like the music there. Like, oh, I didn't know church was about whether or not you like the music. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not tastes and flavors in places that fit or don't fit, but really? Seriously? It, is that what it is? It's, it's about you went down to the store and you, you decided what color shirt you wanted to buy? Like, is it that kind of a thing where I like that or I like this? Isn't there supposed to be something more to it than that? Isn't there, right? Well, I came to church and, and I sat down and, you know, I just, nobody said anything to me, you know? And I just sat there and nobody, and I'm not saying people shouldn't be friendly. We should be connected as the body of Christ. But is it really all about you or is it about him? You know, so we come into church and we turn this, this Godward thing into an inward thing. And in doing that, we strip it of all the power and we wonder why we walk out and live dead in the week because we had this opportunity to proclaim the Lord to one another. And what we did was we just said, what about me? What about me? What about me? We proclaimed me or we waited for someone else to proclaim me. This is a place where we gather in the name of Christ to proclaim him and and, in communion to proclaim his death. Remember how he sacrificed? Remember how he said to follow him? in sacrifice, in this kind of love for one another? Are we doing that? Proclaim it to one another. And so he says, you proclaim the Lord's death. And then he, sa- he connects it to until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, there comes an end to this symbol. There is a sense that when the Lord returns, we will no longer celebrate communion together like that. There will come an end to this Last Supper celebration thing. Um, but it's also connected to the promise that he will return. So is there any reason why Paul would include here, you show the Lord's death until he comes, why he would connect the communion celebration to the return of Christ for the Corinthian believers? Any idea? Okay, maybe they were unsure about where this was all going. <laughs> Good job, Lois. Until I drink it again with you in the kingdom. And that he, Jesus connects it to the return, his return, okay. right? There's, there's some of that. Yeah, for sure. Jesus makes it an eschatology thing, a future events thing. He says, when I come back, then we'll finish this dinner. You know, that, that'll be the end. That'll be our celebration of it. It's all done, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, 
It is, I mean, they, they've lost track of how big of a deal communion is, and they've lost track of the fact that there's this other big thing coming that Jesus is returning. They're not living in light of that. Why would Paul bring that into this discussion with the Corinthians in their communion celebration? Did you, did you, you read the rest of it with me? Did you, you follow along with what he said to them? When the Lord comes back, what happens? Judgment. Oh, so you don't get to do whatever you want because the Lord's returning and you're going to answer for what you do, how you treat this celebration, how you treat your brother and sister in Christ. You will answer to him for what you've done. So you, you are not as big as you think you are. You are not as independent as you think you are. There is the return of Christ and you will, he'll say to you, now why did you do that? And you're going to have to say something. So don't think that you can just act however you want and it's no big deal. See, that's because then the next word, until he comes, the next word is therefore. Because you are going to celebrate this death until he comes and because Jesus is coming, whoever eats and drink unworthily is guilty. Oh, now we're talking judgment terms, aren't we? You see that? In other words, there's, there's a lot of this in the, in the New Testament. The Bible talks about how, you know, I, as a, as a pastor, we as the elders of this church will give account of you to God. What did we do in this church? We have an accounting to give. And so there's a, it's a very serious thing to be an elder or a pastor because I don't answer to a man, I answer to the Lord, right? And if I'm answering to the Lord, that's, that's a big deal. There's a sense that moms and dads will answer to God for how you raise your children because they are his, right? And he gave them to you, but they belong to him. And so I'm a steward of it. There's a sense that we will answer, and you read some of the parables, for the money that we've been given, for the, the monetary blessings that are ours. What did you do with them? Why did you do that? You know what I mean? Why, why did you use it like that? Why didn't you do what I would have done? There's a sense that we will answer for our lives when the Lord returns. And so he's saying to the Corinthians, you act like this is all just a fairy tale, just an excuse to have a little club where you can set yourself up as bigger than everybody else. You act like Jesus didn't actually die. Jesus didn't actually call you to follow him in death. And Jesus isn't coming back to check and see how you did. You act like you, it's all made up. And so I'm telling you, every time you eat the bread and every time you drink the cup, you should remember that he's coming. You should remember that he died for you. Now, when he connects that, you know, therefore, to the return of Christ and and really to the bigger context, remember the bigger context when we get into this because what happens is, have you ever been in a church that said, you can't have communion if you're not a member of this church. This is where that comes from. Why does it come from this? Well, it comes from this because eating or drinking in an unworthy manner is the issue. And the definition of unworthy manner is where things get all kind of helter-skelter. Okay? So what is it, an unworthy manner? What does it mean to eat or drink, to take communion in an unworthy manner? Matter and, and if we can answer that question, then, then the, what Paul is saying here makes a lot of sense. The problem is, 
A lot of times when we read that passage, we read it, we start where I started tonight, and we finish where I finished tonight, and that's all we read. We do not connect it to what Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church, which if you've been following along with us, it's like, duh, what's the unworthy matter? But if you don't hear that, if you're not connecting it to that, you kind of come up with, well, what does unworthy mean? Eat or drink unworthily. Okay, so let's look at that a little bit. Whoever eats or drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The words sinning against, guilty of sinning against, personally liable for. In other words, it is as though you are taking the guilt on yourself for destroying Jesus, for destroying his, for breaking his body. It's like you're doing it all over again. That's kind of what Paul is saying there. And I think it will make sense uh, as we go through this. So let's, let's start with worthy or unworthy. All right. Now, what makes you worthy or unworthy to take communion? Okay. Worthy if you are saved. If you are a child of God, you are worthy. Does everybody agree with that? And you have different thoughts? Okay, well, and we'll look at that in a second. It's, it's actually not communion that it's talked about. It's actually a, a worship offering, but, it's, but the same kind of idea there. Okay, so when, when you talk about worthy, are you on your own worthy to receive communion? No. We become worthy because Christ forgave us and because Christ gave us his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So it's a gift, and we become worthy, not by merit, but by gift. So therefore, unworthy, if I'm going to go by that thing, is not about whether I have sin in my life or whether I, you know, that's not what he's, he's not talking about whether you are individually worthy to receive the body and blood of Christ. People who are in churches that refuse you to eat or drink because you're not a member of the church, say, it's because we don't know where you stand with Christ, right? We're, we're not spiritually responsible for you, and we don't want you to eat and drink condemnation on your soul because you're not one of us. So go find your own church, or if you want to be a part of this church, come under the accountability of this church so that we can ensure you're not eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. Problem with that is the unworthy manner is about whether or not you're a child of God. And even if you're a part of their church, they don't know whether you're a child of God. Only God judges the soul, right? So it's kind of well-intended, but off base to do that. Because the reality, and that's why for us, you know, I've had people before say, well, there might be somebody unsaved taking communion when we pass communion around. And I'm like, mm, yeah, they might be. I, it's not my job, right? It's, that's God's job to take care of that. I'm not, I don't believe that they are getting, they are, you know, sliding down into the, the pit of hell because they ate a piece of bread, right? They're saved or not saved based on whether or not what they've done with Jesus Christ, right? But you, but you always make that pretty clear in your announcement to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and no one will be judged by that. Right. So, and I, and I, honestly, I honestly believe that what he's saying here about worthy or unworthy has nothing to do with worthy or unworthy to have communion. It's about how, his, how the children of God are behaving in an unworthy manner, 
All right. So that's why I start there because that's what this gets used for. But that's not what this is. That's not what Paul's talking about. Right. Right. But but we've decided. Well, what would be a worthy person? What would that look like? It's somebody who's done everything that they know to do, and somebody who's received Christ, and somebody who's not doing anything that they know not to do. And and boy, doesn't that get tricky? And then what happens is because later on he says, is, "Let a man examine himself." So we're so I, man, I grew up in this. You know, here comes communion, and we're going to give you 15 minutes to sit here and beat yourself up about, you know, how lousy of a person you've been so that you can be worthy. And, and that same church would teach you that being a child of God has nothing to do with what you did or didn't do, that your sins can only be addressed by the blood of Christ, not by feeling crummy about yourself, right? But, that, but now here I am as a believer, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to guilt myself into being worthy somehow. You know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry my eyes out of it. And I'm not saying there's anything bad about confession and repentance and all that. But the fear behind, you better be worthy, you know, is, is misplaced. It's, it's taking, in classic sense, taking this passage out of the flow of what Paul has been talking about and making it say something it isn't saying, right? So should we at communion look at our lives and see how well we've been following Jesus? Sure we should. But I would suggest to you that Paul's biggest concern about where we're following Jesus lies where their biggest failure is in Corinth, in his primary command that he gave in conjunction with communion. This is the new command that I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. That, that's what he's asking them to do as the, as the cup goes around, as the bread goes around. Love one another as I have loved you. And that's exactly what they're not doing here in Corinth. And so when Paul says, you're celebrating the sacrifice of your leader that you say you're following, and you are completely rejecting his leadership, his example, his command, his direction, his heart. And it is not worthy of the one that you're celebrating. It is the Lord's Supper, and he said it earlier, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, because if it was his supper, you would be honoring him and not yourself. Does that make sense? And so Paul's correcting the behavior of the Corinthians. He has gone back to the source of where what happened at the Last Supper to remind them of what he said. This should be done in remembrance of me. And the expectation of remembrance is a remembrance that responds. Not a remembrance that's like, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus died. Like that's, you, you get that that's not what we're talking about here. It's a remembrance that's like, can you believe my king died for me? It's, it's that. It's a response in that remembrance. It's being flooded again with the love of my Savior for me. That's, that's what's worthy in a worthy manner of celebrating my God, celebrating the sacrifice of Christ, being called and declared as his follower. That's what's worthy of him. And he says, you are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And the end of this discussion says that they are facing judgment because they are acting this way in the face of the example and model and command of their leader. 
And so this judgment, we'll, we'll look at what that is. By the way, this is not a new concept. This is something Jesus emphasized, like we just said in John 13, love one another as I have loved you, command from God. Connected to communion, connected to my relationship with God. It comes up again and again in Scripture that my relationship with God is definitively connected to my relationship with people. That I do not go away, you know, this concept that I can worship God out in nature on a hill somewhere. You kind of can, but you kind of can't. Because there is no pattern in Scripture where people go off by themselves to worship God. It's like you've removed all the real ways to worship Him when you've disconnected yourself from the people that He's called you to worship them by how you treat them. That's how your faith lives and breathes and grows, is that as I love God, I love you. When Jesus gave two commands, he gave love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and go out on an island and be by yourself. No, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the question comes, well, who is my neighbor? Right? And then the story of the Good Samaritan comes out, which the story of the Good Samaritan, the point is people who feel like they've got this great relationship with God but have no care or concern with someone God brought across their path have a lousy relationship with God. They don't even know God. Because if they did, it would affect how they did this. You see? And so, and Jesus said at other times, like in Matthew 5, what, what Linda was talking about, if you come to the, the altar with your gift, but you have some problem with a brother or sister in Christ, what are you supposed to do? Leave your gift at the altar. Don't take it with you because you may not come back with it. Leave it there. We don't think that way anymore. Like that's what they, when he talks about don't, don't take your gift with you, leave it at the altar, he means you're committed to worship, but in committing to worship, worship changes how you respond to people. So you become sensitive to what I did or said or how I wronged somebody, and so I leave my gift there because I'm coming to worship, but I'm, I, I have to make this right with my brother first because my relationship with people is intricately connected to my relationship with God. Right? In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, as he prays along, you know, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debtors as we, or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, people, you can get all kinds of wound up in what that means. Is our, is our forgiveness conditional on his forgiveness for me and, and all that stuff? But I think the clarity of it is this. My relationship with God, if it's real, my love for Jesus Christ, if it's real, will definitively affect my relationship with people, how I act and treat people. It can't be all this. It's got to be reflective of Him. Mary. Yes. Yes. Matthew 25, the, the, the final judgment, the, the separation of sheep and goats at the coming, the return of Christ. And he says, hey, you guys visited me in prison and, and saw me when I was sick and took care of me and gave me a cup of cold water. And they're like, what are you talking about? We never did that. And he said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. There is a connection. And we cannot disintegrate that connection. Christ won't allow it. There is a connection. Corinthians wanted to act like church was a place of stratus and status and I can be higher or lower and I've attained more and I've got more honor and less honor. And that was not how Jesus interacted with his disciples. He was clearly their leader, but he did not 
push them down or critique them or condemn them or act like he was superior to them. He served them. Remember, he got up and washed their feet. That's the whole point, right? He served them. The greatest among you will be the servant of all, just like I have served you. And so how I react to people. And so that the Corinthian church has off is what he's addressing when he says in an unworthy manner. You act like my command is garbage. And then you celebrate my sacrifice, but you won't follow it. You think it's very dear, except it's not good enough for you. You see, if you eat or drink in an unworthy manner, it is like you are destroying the body of Christ all over again. What you are proclaiming, you are making a mockery of. It goes back to what he said before. It would be better if you didn't have church at all than if you had it like you're having it. You do more harm than good. You are destroying the name of Christ because the name of Christ will be great as we reflect the way that he lived and instructed us to live. This is how everyone will know if you love one another. That's what they'll know. You're my disciple if you love one another. And then somebody walks into church and sees this mess going on and what? And you're destroying the body of Christ. By the way, notice the double meaning of the word body here. Guilty of the body, destroying the body of the Lord. Where's the body of Christ now? Oh, by the way, in case that feels far-fetched to you, um, about 15 verses from now, verse 12 of chapter 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. We are one body. So this is not far-fetched to think that Paul is describing the destruction kind of twofold of Christ, of his sacrifice being destroyed, of his body being wrecked again, but of his body being wrecked by the way that you're interacting amongst one another at communion. Pretty powerful stuff. And so Paul goes on and says, you know, you are sinning against Jesus' body and blood. You become liable for the destruction of his body. And so therefore, someone should examine their own self before you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so in light of what we've talked about tonight, what are we to examine? What's he asking us to examine? Our own heart, okay? That's kind of ambiguous. What's he asking us to examine? Behavior, how? Okay, close to Christ. He's saying... This is not a hard thing to examine. This is not what I grew up with where it's like, have I done anything wrong? Have I thought any bad thoughts? God, if if I'm forgetting anything, bring it to my... Like, it's not that. This is like the no-duh. Are you acting like a jerk to your brothers and sisters in Christ? You should examine yourself. Take a... This is a mirror. Take a look in the mirror, right? It's like when you get up in the morning and you see what happened to you overnight, Right? You, you can like, 
oh, it's not like a big strange mystery. Is there anything I should be doing? It's like, uh, there's a lot of stuff I need to be doing here before I go out and, you know, subject the world to this, right? So that idea is the same thing here. It's not like some grand mystery about are you worthy or not? Are you eating or drinking in a worthy manner? It is a calling before God to look at my life in comparison to the way that Christ loved. This is an example of the love of Christ. When we, when we celebrate communion, there is nothing if there is not a reminder of the love of Christ for us. And it is held up in front of me as a, not only a, a reminder of his love for me, but a calling to love like that other people. How am I doing? How do I love the body of Christ? And in Corinth, that's why he suggests, before you put that bread in your mouth, think about how you're treating the body of Christ. So you're not eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. I mean, that's just, when you read it, when you actually read it, like, of course that's what it's saying. But when you've grown up in a, in a circumstance where it's, you know, all this other stuff behind it about what's worthy or unworthy, it, it just kind of like pollutes your brain about what it is. And so, and what he says, you can, I mean, follow after that. Um, Verse 28 is, ought to examine himself, verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord. Do you see it? Recognizing the body of the Lord. Being mindful of the body. There's the double entendre there of being mindful of his body broken for me, his example of self-sacrificing, all-out broken love for me. The body of the Lord. I'm not recognizing the body of the Lord, that this is the body. And in recognizing the body, which is the point he's going to make in the next chapter about the body, what's the, what's the one thing about the, the picture of the bo- us being a body of Christ that Paul emphasizes the most? Like, why does he choose the picture of a body? Okay, because it all works together. Okay, connected. So what's that mean, connected? What's that mean if... Right. So I'm interdependent in a body, right? I might have the best eyes in the world, but if my hands don't work, it's going to be really hard for me to eat or comb my hair. Or whatever. You know what I mean? Just because this is really good, they, I'm interdependent. And so in the Corinthian church, as I shove down the, those who are in need and let them be hungry and don't minister to their needs and diminish them, I'm diminished because we're connected. It's the body. We are one body. And so if one of us suffers, we all suffer. If one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. We are connected spiritually. And so if I come together to celebrate communion and I act disconnected from the body of Christ, I'm not recognizing the body of Christ, I better watch out. See what he's saying? I'm not going to, God's not going to let you keep acting like that. Now, why would God make this such a serious thing? That he's going to intervene in judgment on the church because of this issue of how you treat each other in church. Why is that such a big deal? Doesn't that seem like, well, people are people. People gossip. People slander. People hate each other. Whatever. It's people are people. And God's like, no, not in my church. This is a big deal. Because why? It's his children. Are you kind of protective of your children? Okay, so maybe God has some of that going on, right? 
Okay? It's a clear instruction, so there's faith or, or obedience or disobedience or disbelief in it. Yeah? God thought enough of this kind of love to send his son to die. Yeah. So think about that. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the the way that Christ is represented in this world. What impression do people get of Jesus Christ from his followers? See why God takes it so seriously? How we treat each other. A lot of things can be forgiven, but the thing that, that people look at and say, something's not right there. They say God is this loving God, but they hate each other. They're so full of pride. They're always beating each other up. They never make anything right. They just jump from one church to the other church, and it's all gossip and all slander and judgment. You walk in and you feel judged. Like all that stuff, we're the representation of God. So for us, we're like, we want to make sure people know how God loves them by how we love them. And we won't do it perfectly, but people aren't asking you to do it perfectly. They're asking you to do it. Like, just get after it a little bit, you know? And, and people are very receptive to these acts of service and love. And so as we serve one another by love, we reflect God's nature, God's goodness, God's glory. And when we don't, it's a very serious matter, a very serious matter. And I guess we're, we're kind of out of time, so we'll have to pick it up there next time we talk about eating and drinking judgment on yourself. All right? Okay, uh, so we'll get back to that next week. Before we go tonight... Always want to have an opportunity to, to uh, share prayer requests and, and pray for each other. What can we remember tonight before we go? Anybody have anything? Kent.